Well, good morning. It's good to be here worshiping with you. Good to uh, be there for the first part of the service. Thank you, Zach, for leading in the songs that you all shared as well. I am so grateful for the goodness of God, and some of those songs really highlighted that. And I can't remember what all they were, but numerous songs began to, uh, phrases would stick out to me that go along very well with what I'd like to address this morning. So I'd like to continue on. Uh, This will be the last sermon of three parts dealing with the assurance of the Christian, assurance of salvation, and hopefully these topics encourage us on to follow Jesus, and it's not a glib assurance. It's not something we take lightly. It's something very significant, but the Lord wants us to be at rest and at peace. We've looked at 1 John, and I'm going to come away from that today, but I want to just read a couple of verses from 1 John, first one, chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full, And chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not leaving any room for questioning there. And then he finishes that by saying, and that you may continue to believe. There's an ongoing belief that happens. There's assurance that we are expected to live in, that God wants us to experience I apologize for the short cord here. I am used to looking at my computer so I know what's coming next. So if I'm looking this way, it's just because I'm staying oriented. Uh, For some reason, the extension is not cooperating currently. We're going to Romans 8. I love this passage. There's several chapters in Romans, and I think some of you might uh, be familiar with them. But the first verse is actually a good description of what's to follow. Who knows what chapter 5, verse 1 says? Anyone remember? Pop it off if you do. That's 6. What's 5? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And he describes that. Chapter 6, that's what Chad said. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. God forbid. We get on over. He goes through several Uh, ramifications of that throughout 6 and 7. And then we get to chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we drop down into the chapter, and you have the verse on the screen, verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? He's been discussing salvation and the fact that we can live above sin. He says, what do we say? If God's for us, who can be against us? And it's the beginning of a sequence of questions that he, he believes has an obvious answer. He answers some of them, and some of them we are just left to understand what he means by asking it. So just a quick review. God wants us to enjoy a full assurance of salvation. Hebrews 10, uh, we looked at that last time, actually two times ago we looked at that in particular in which we have access to Christ. It talks about, or we have access to God through Christ. We talked about the 
veil of the temple being torn, being able to get into the Holy of Holies through what Jesus did, the fact that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Last time we were in 1 John, and we looked at the three witnesses of, that affirm our salvation, the witness of confession, obedience, and the Spirit. And under obedience, we talked about love for each other and love for God. So what I'd like for us to do today is to then jump to uh, the last section, problems that are in that realm of assurance, problems we encounter, not problems with God's part, problems on the human side. And what do we do with that? How do we respond to it? Unfortunately, the first two messages that I preached, uh, the, the content of those, sometimes we still end up struggling. struggling. Those things are true. And yet the reality of life is that sometimes we, are, we find ourselves doubting and we wonder what's actually happening as we think about our salvation. We lose the joy of our salvation. And I just ask a few questions at the beginning. What could cause you to lose the assurance of salvation? And what are you willing to do to regain it if you have lost it? Or maybe you never solidly had it. What would you be willing to do to keep from losing it? And I hope that we can unpack some of those answers today that can be helpful. So I'd like for you all to uh, look at me, look with me at the topic of victorious Christian assurance. There's a foundational principle we've already talked about, and that is that God is for us. That's just kind of like the, the bedrock of what we're going to talk about today. God is for us. One of the things I think we forget is in the difficulties of life, it feels like God's maybe quiet or maybe even opposed to us. And I'm going to say that is a feeling because the truth is God is for us. For those of you who are parents, you will know the reality of this. For those of you who are not, I don't think it's too hard for you to imagine. I hope it's not. When a child needs direction and discipline, they may feel like you are opposing them. And in fact, you may be opposing their actions or their attitude. They need direction and correction. But the truth is, you are not against your child. You are for them, and it is the very reason that you are giving them that correction and discipline. And I think in a very similar way, those times, as we follow Jesus, we may not always have that feeling that God is for us. But count on it. He is. He is for you and for me as we walk with Him and follow Him. So let's read here in Romans 8, and I'd like for you all to read along with me. We have it on the screen. Let's do this in unison. It'll be two screens and you'll see on each screen there's a verse or a part of a verse that's separated and uh, highlighted with bold underline. And those that is done for emphasis, I want you to catch those phrases. Altogether, beginning at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... Him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Wonderful. I say hallelujah to that. That is such a wonderful privilege that we have. What can separate us from the love of God? He has this whole long list. He says nothing. I'm convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God. Remember the bedrock. God is for us. He is not going to forsake us. If there's distance between us and God, it's not God's fault. It has to do with people not staying close to him. And then we have this feeling sometimes, well, I don't feel close to God. Okay, let's go back to your heart's desire. What do you really want? The human experience is that I don't always feel everything in reality, but my heart is to seek after Christ and to go after him. Rest assured, the Lord is there, and the humanity, the feeling that enters in may or may not be accurate. I was blessed that I was a part of me that just wished we'd park here in Romans 8 and spend our entire time in this passage. One thing I hadn't thought of deeply before as I was reading this morning again, in verse 32, you can see it there. He says, God gave us his son, freely gave his son to us. And then he says, how shall he not? He already gave his son. How shall he not freely give us all things? And I think what he's trying to say here is God didn't withhold his son to begin with. We can count on it. He's going to give us everything that we need to live victoriously and to walk with him. God is for us. It, he's started that process. He's going to continue it and there's not going to be any separation from him for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 31, God is for us. Verse 32, God gave his only son. Verse 33, he justifies us. He, clear, he clears our account of sin. Verse 34, he intercedes for us continually. Uh, verse 35, his love is always near. That continues into 36. And... Uh, verse 37, he says, we're more than conquerors. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. 
we need to believe the truth of what God has provided for us. We're going to look at problems relating to Christian assurance and two areas in particular. The first one, the problem of doubt. And once again, this is a human problem. This is not a God problem. He's got it all figured out. He's there. He's rock solid. It's us who, as we go through the difficulties of life, experience other things. Those doubting salvation are usually believers. If you think about that, if you're doubting salvation and you're struggling and wondering, most of the people that I have encountered who were doubting that, their heart was actually right with the Lord. They wanted to be right. It was trouble that the devil was bringing to them. Now, I have encountered someone who was willfully living in sin, and they were asking questions about, is there any hope for me? That's very different. They had known sin. They were unwilling to change. They were unwilling to repent of that. And I couldn't give them any confidence within that state where their heart was not to go after Christ. But often, those doubting salvation are believers. Unbelievers, think about this. Unbelievers, they typically don't care. Just the fact that you're concerned about that doubt says something. It gives an indication of where your heart is. You care about that. So if you've given your heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're seeking to follow Him with all your heart, then take comfort in the promises of God. He is faithful. Don't stay in the misery of doubt. I'd like to talk a little bit about sources of doubt. Where does it come from? Uh, it can come from some very bad places and maybe from even some, I'm going to say okay places. It's just a natural process of things we experience. But doubt is used by the devil to question truth. And obviously this is a big negative. He he loves to insert his questions. He did it to Eve. Did God really mean that? Did God really say that? We need to use the Word of God and the Spirit to discern truth. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what we need. We need that discernment from the Word of God to help us figure out what's really true. Doubt can come from the human intellect. It can come from our thoughts, the way that we think, the things we think. When things just don't make sense, a traumatic event, how is God in this? I'm grateful that in difficulty, God has taught me a life lesson that I hope I never forget, and that is I vividly have it imprinted on my mind that God is a redeeming God. And even if we don't see that redemption the way we wish we would here on earth, Ultimately, he will redeem it somehow for his glory, and I'm so grateful for that. Thomas doubted that Jesus was alive, and Jesus said to him, Be not faithless, but believing. We're to use our minds. Uh, in Romans 12, we're told to have renewed minds. Uh, Corinthians, we're told to be changed. We're changed into a new man. 
Let's not allow the human intellect to cause doubt. Doubt can come from an emphasis on holy living. Well, no, this is one of the, neg- one of the positives I was saying. It actually comes from a good place, but out of balance. So we ought to care about how we live. Romans 6 says, don't continue in sin. Romans 7 talks about some of the practical outworking of that. Romans 8, there is no condemnation. We should live right, but we should not live right from a perspective of fear. We should not live in fear. We should live for the Lord out of a love relationship, having a sensitive conscience. This is a discussion we've had. Sometimes we hear sensitive conscience given in almost a negative connotation. And I think a more helpful way to look at that is that everybody ought to have a sensitive conscience. The question is, what do you do with it? Well, for starters, think of the opposite. If you don't have a sensitive conscience, what do you have? Maybe a calloused one? And I think all of us would agree that that's problematic. So it's good to have a sensitive conscience, but not one that terrorizes us. It's one that we're sensitive to the truth that God has, and we keep saying yes to Him. We want to live for Him, but we don't allow that to drive us into a point of fear. And I'm going to say that I believe anxious hearts are okay, provided that we turn to God's words for answers and comfort. Anxious hearts are not okay for us to stay there and to deal with anxiety, and we don't know how to handle it. We can't come to to grips and understanding with, here's the truth of God's word. Now, if you're someone who deals with that anxiety, I realize I brushed right over that and I gave you a biblical answer. I believe that's true. Sometimes the process of getting there takes longer, and there might be causes for that anxiety. I want to acknowledge that, and I think that that needs addressed in a very uh, healthy, helpful way from a broad perspective. But get the spiritual part of it right, and if there's other pieces that need to come into play, those can be dealt with as well. So back to the thing about anxious hearts are okay. I say that because that can actually propel us towards Christian growth. It actually helps us grow. I don't like to stay at this uncertain uh, place, this place where I don't feel like everything is at peace. It propels us to find that, to seek that peace in Christ. And it can also be what drives us to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, we're told to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We ought to do that. We ought to regularly ask Christ, what do I need to change? Show me. And then we obey and we follow his leading. It's really one of the writings that First John was, one of the reasons First John was written was to equip believers to discern between true and false Christians. And as you go through the book of First John, You can apply that to yourself, not just to other people in other situations. We discern our spiritual well-being with the same knowledge. So how do we resolve doubt? 
In the previous messages, we talked about, here we go, we talked about, get back here, here we go. We talked about Jesus having a sacrifice that was once for all. He had a perfect sacrifice that was not needing to be repeated, Hebrews 10. Uh, they repeatedly had sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple. Uh, no longer. Jesus sacrifice once for all, the perfect sacrifice. The other thing we talked about was that Jesus' death gives us access to God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, that veil has been torn by his sacrifice. And now there's another type that I'd like for us to look at. So think about the first one, the perfect sacrifice, the once for all. I'm going to put that into the category, and, and these lines are blurred. They do overlap, but just to help understand, in that particular one, I'm going to say that's primarily when we come to Christ, and we know that we have a sin problem greater than we can correct. We come to Christ trusting Him. That's that once-for-all sacrifice that it's where we are purified. And then we come to the fact that we can have access to God because of what Jesus did, but now we're living and we're going through life and we bump into our failures. We bump into life's difficulties. And I'd like to bring us to the purifying type of the red heifer. Jesus removes uncleanness. If you go to Numbers 19, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but you will find instructions on what the children of Israel were to do for ongoing uncleanness. And this particular uh, purification, it was different from the sin offerings. Now, it was also called sin because uncleanness is offensive to God. He wanted them to be ceremonially clean. So he used the term sin, but it's talking about a different kind of thing. Purifying type of the red heifer the ashes of the red heifer were used for purification of uncleanness, and that was different from the sacrifices of atonement. I want to make a few comments there before we go on. If you were to read that, what you would find is that you could become unclean by touch, touching a dead body, being in the same room or a tent with a dead person, even open vessels that were in the same room as a dead body had to be purified. It was not just uh, people that needed it. It was also things. And the list goes on. There's numerous things, but it was that type of thing that was, it was uncleanness. It wasn't overt sin in the fact of I'm doing something wrong. And I think we could say that many of these things are either necessary or accidental. That's what Numbers 19 is describing. So now pull that back to us in our experience and how that may apply to us here. As we go through life, we have things that we bump into, we inadvertently do. We were having this discussion at our cell meeting this last week about uh, in willful, intentional sinning, and, and more impulsive ones. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but I think that's the kind of thing that we experience is we come through an experience like, 
man, I messed up. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that, and I repent of that. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here with this uncleanness. Listen to the words in Hebrews 9. Um, let's see. It's talking about Jesus coming in the tabernacle. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, the blood of bulls and goats, that's the sin atonement offering, and the ashes of a heifer, that's the uncleanness offering, if that, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, what's the next phrase? How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience. The blood of Christ cleanses us from uncleanness. That's the type of the ashes of the red heifer that I believe is it applies to us today. So the sacrifice of Christ covers uncleanness, and you'll see the words here as I'm catching up on the screen. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? The blessed, blessed thought. The fourth thing is to remember that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And that is a quote from Scripture. It's usually false charges to create a sense of guilt in the believer, usually general in nature. I'm not going to discuss this uh, real long. We have a lot more material I want to cover but in contrast, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, and this is usually specific, and it gives us something to repent of. We have that sin nature conversion that we repent of, and then we have ongoing sins as we live through life, and we agree with God, we repent of it. So how do you tell between those two? Well, if it's just a general nagging sense of doubt, and guilt, often that is from the devil. And it's what I'm going to call false guilt. The Lord and His Spirit, if He wants you to repent, He will give you something very specific from which to repent of. And you can do that. And then go on, accept His forgiveness, and be free of that guilt, and let Him clean it up. And there's where we go to the last one, accept the promise of God's forgiveness. And I have a number of scriptures here. I'd like for you just to hear them. I'm going to have them on the screen. And listen to what God says about his promises. First of all, Philippians 1.6, we should be confident of God's working in our lives, being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We should be confident of Deliverance and preservation. 2 Timothy 4.18, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God's keeping power and intention. We need to be confident in that. Romans 8, we already read these. If God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. And then a passage I love from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. A wonderful 
passage a blessing now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Thank the Lord for that. That is God's keeping power and intention. Doubters, rest on his promises and in his power. If God is for us, who can be against us? His power is much greater than anything that we could possibly come up with on our own. Trust in Christ's promises and rest in Christ's finished work on the cross. So doubt, is it helpful or damaging? And I'm going to say it's dependent on where we go to get our answers. It can be healthy, it can be helpful if we get the right answers to our questions. It's actually a part of growing. Uh, recently in talking with a young man a few months ago, he talked about his own struggle and how within the last year or two, he would have been at a point where he didn't, he wasn't even sure that he believed anything he had been taught growing up. That was a scary time for him, but he came through that. And as you talk to him today, he is very solidly, yes, I believe that. It's absolutely true. There's not a question in his mind. But that period of doubt was actually helpful to him because he went to the right place for answers. Uh, you know, if in math, if you have correct formulas, you will get the correct answers. If you have flawed formulas, you get the wrong answers. So maybe you struggled in math. It was because something wasn't right in the equation. When math is handled properly, it works. And it's the same way spiritually. We have to use the correct basis to get our answers or we end up with the wrong ones. So I have a list of things here uh, where I'm comparing wrong and right sources for how we get our answers. The one side is damaging and unhealthy. The other side is helpful and healthy. Some of these quite obvious. The first one is simply between self and God. We have to push away from just our own humanness and what's me and my experience and go to what God says. That's where we'll get the true answers. The human intellect is very closely related to that. We have to go to God's wisdom. His ways are way beyond our thoughts. Tradition only versus principled practice. Everybody has tradition. Tradition is good, can be good, can be bad, but never Never should our faith be only tradition. It must be principled practice. And it's okay if it turns into tradition. Every generation does it. Wherever you have a group of people, they have tradition. Actually, you probably could have it with individuals. As an individual, you can do things. You just like to do it that way. That can become a personal tradition. But we have to have principled practice in spiritual matters. Tradition only becomes a shell. Religion, very similar. Religion is a form or practice of something you believe. What we need is much more than that. We need Jesus in a relationship with him, connecting to Almighty God. Worldly values, absolutely the wrong answer. Go to God's kingdom and his economy. Personal desire and opinion. One of the things that scares me about myself is that I have the ability to think 
thoughts that might seem right, but they're not from the Lord. And that is a point of discernment for me that I think will probably be a lifelong awareness. How do I know, how do I discern when that's my idea or it's the Spirit of God prompting me? Because there have been times that I have assigned something to the Spirit of God, incorrectly so. And so I keep trying to get close to Him, staying in His Word, cultivating that relationship so that I can hear His voice and I can recognize it. But I think it's very healthy to know that my personal desire and opinion may be there as well. People, yeah, can be a real good source. But I'm going to qualify that and say it's got to be godly counsel. Not just any person, but somebody who's in, turn, in tune with God's spirit and can give us good input and in helping find good answers. So we have to turn to the right place for the right answers. We also need to cultivate a vibrant relationship with Jesus to guard against doubt. I've already made comments as we went through that list, but that's really what my comments are intended to do is we have to go to Jesus. It's got to be a daily walk with him where we're cultivating that relationship. We're fixing our minds on Jesus, and we develop a lifestyle that is centered around following Jesus. That becomes the driving force of our lives. So let's go to the, the last problem that we have here, the problem of falling away or apostasy. And I'd like for us to recognize a couple of things. We're dealing with doubt it's probably not real helpful to be sitting here thinking about, oh, apostasy is a reality or a possibility because now my mind can start going in circles about, is that me? Well, I'd like for us to approach this topic briefly but in a very healthy way. Yes, it is a possibility, and I'm going to look at a couple of verses. I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. But apostasy is not inevitable, and it is avoidable. And so, here again, we need not live in fear. First of all, apostasy is a possibility. I want to show you a couple verses in Second Peter. And here, I think, is one of the better definitions of what is apostasy. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, so we're talking about somebody who came out of that worldly uncleanness, they came out through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And then the last part there, talks, uh, verse 22, it quotes from a proverb about the dog returning to its own vomit and the sow to her wallowing in the mire after she was cleaned up. So it's describing a state or a condition where you have somebody who was once free from sin and then chooses to go back into it. Uh, Hebrews 10.26 talks about sinning willfully, and I think we have to bring that component in. Apostasy is a state or describes the state of somebody who has been following Jesus, and they make a very conscious, distinct choice. They are going the other way. They have turned their back on the Lord. 
It's not someone who's following Jesus and I stumble, I mess up. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what apostasy is. When you hear these very serious words in here, it says, it would have been better if they never would have. You hear words like, there remains no hope for them. And the way I understand that is that when you turn your back on Christ, you have turned your back on the only hope for salvation. If you turn away from that, there is no other hope. You're going the wrong way. The only hope is to follow Christ. And so what we're talking about is people who willfully, deliberately turn away from that. And that's what you have in the, the definition that I have on the screen. So I'd like to go to something that... Uh, actually, I want to bless Brother John sitting in the back here. John, do you remember about 20-something years ago, you preached a sermon about Christian assurance here at Wellspring? Yeah, well, a piece of it stuck, and there's a phrase I'm going to have on the screen. I don't know if it was original with John or not, but he gave it in that message, and it's always stayed with me that how true this is, and that is that the security of the believer is in Christ. If you go to Romans 8, we've already talked about this. Look at these phrases I have highlighted. There's no condemnation where for those who are in Christ. You go to Romans 8:39, it says those people that can't be separated from the love of God, it's those who are in Christ. You go to 2 Corinthians 5:17, it talks about being a new creation if anyone is in Christ. That's the phrase. That's where the security of the believer is. We must be in Christ. And here's the phrase that brother John shared. In Christ, I am always secure. In sin, I am never secure. Did you coin that, John? Was that your phrase, or did you get that somewhere else? Okay, I know you heard of it. You said it. <laughs> Think about that. In Christ, I am always secure. That is true. I walk in Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. The devil can't make any accusation rightfully against me when I'm in Christ. And I don't know where all those lines are. Thank the Lord. He knows. He's a just God. And he knows when people reject him. And he'll have to be the judge. He is the judge on that. So in sin, I'm never secure. I can't give someone hope who deliberately lives in sin. The Bible gives no hope to them. Our hope is in Christ. Not only through Christ, but in Him, walking with Him, following Him. The song that we sometimes sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. There's a biblical security that we as Christians can enjoy, and it comes by abiding in Christ. I do not live in fear that God is waiting for me to do wrong so he can crush me. He is a gracious God full of mercy 
His response to my failure is to draw me back to himself. The question is, will I respond to his wooing? Do I remain moldable clay that he can shape? And is my heart sensitive and responsive to his drawing? Apostasy is avoidable. We need to have a teachable spirit. Humility in our opinions. And love God above all else, especially my personal desires. When we do those things, we remain people that God can change. Change into His image. That whole thing of humility, that is so hard when you think you're right. And I just like, I need to remind myself and remind all of us, you know, the people you're talking to think they're right too. They have the same right as I do to think what they do. And if I approach that with humility, hopefully I can learn something. And hopefully they can learn something. And we can come to an understanding of what's good or best based on the information we have. I feel like we flew through that, and yet it took time to do it. There's so much more depth that could be drawn out of some of those scriptures. I want to bring us back to, if God is for us, who can be against us? We're talking about Almighty God of the universe. He gave us salvation. He freely gave us His Son. How much more will He freely give us all things as we follow Him? Trust in Christ and His keeping power. And I would just simply like to end by praying this doxology. Lord, I just thank you for today, the truth of your word that in Christ we can always be secure. Give us discernment to know what is legitimate guilt. Give us wisdom and grace to repent, to follow you, to change, and to be molded into your image. And Lord, we commit today to trust in you and your keeping power. And to him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.